If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1. Uh, Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Uh, if you remember, we're just coming off uh, chapter 5, where Jesus gets asked a question about fasting and why his disciples uh, don't fast like John the Baptist's disciples and like the Pharisees. And he said that uh, he, he gave some parables. You can't fast when the bridegroom is there. It's time to party, not to fast. And you can't put new wine in old wineskins. They'll break. And uh, he's illustrating that you can't bring the old system, the old covenant, into the new uh, with, with its laws. And then we're going to see it played out uh, practically uh, throughout the Gospel of Luke, but especially uh, in these verses. So Luke chapter 6, starting verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the, and the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath uh, to do good or to harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, I pray that uh, you give us wisdom now from your word, Lord, that the Holy Spirit applies this text to us personally. God, I pray you give us a greater understanding of who you are and what you're like as we see Christ at work fulfilling the law of Moses and his actions. God, I pray that uh, you would uh, use this word, apply it to the, each individual uh, uh, person here today. And Lord, if there's anyone here who has yet to find uh, their hope in Christ, that you might grant them uh, that grace today that they might believe. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, we're going to see the love of Christ. Uh, in action. We're going to see the purest heart. We're going to see the fulfillment of the law on display in Christ's life. And with anything bright or shining, uh, take a diamond, for example. Uh, if you want to see how brilliant a diamond is, uh, what a jeweler will do is they'll put that diamond in front of a dark piece of velvet, whether usually black, and the, and the diamond will shine. And in our text, uh, we get to see the beauty of Christ, uh, the love of God, shine forth with the backdrop uh, of the Pharisees' uh, black and evil and unloving, selfish hearts. Uh, they're both uh, present, and my prayer is that uh, you will understand what God is more like by understanding uh, this 
text. You know, one of the things I will do with anyone I'm talking to or discipling or counseling is I'll ask them the question, what is God like? And I'll have a pencil in my hand, and I want to hear what they think when they get asked that question. What might they say? Tozer has one of the most uh, famous quotes. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. If someone was going to ask you, what is God like? I wonder what your list would look like. I wonder if you'd be able to come up with very much. And I wonder what, that, what would be on that list. Would it be what the scripture puts forth as who God is? I believe in this text, the Pharisees are assuming God is one way. And they are very appalled as they run into God in the person of Christ and find out he's very different than what they thought he was like. Uh, There's a passage in Jeremiah 9, starting in verse 23, where Jeremiah says uh, this, Thus says the Lord, "Let, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. If you're going to boast about something, boast about knowing God, but then listen to how God reveals himself in this passage. Let him boast in this, that he knows and understands me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Do you know that God is a God of steadfast, patient love and kindness? In fact, in Exodus uh, 34, verse 5, when Uh, Moses is going back up with the new tablets because the ones he had, he broke uh, in anger when he saw Israel's idolatry. Uh, He goes back up, and here's what we read in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. The Lord came to meet Moses and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed... So this is God telling Moses who he is. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. I wonder if your description of God would be similar to God's description of himself to Moses. Let's, uh, let's uh, look at verse 1 in our text and see what we discover about Christ in about God in this text. Uh, if you look at your notes there, the charge of the sermon is love because Christ is Lord. Love because Christ is Lord. You might be thinking, what does that mean? And I hope uh, you will understand. And how we're going to do this is we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 5. Then we're going to ask the two questions on our notes there. Do you profess Christ's lordship over all things? Does love legitimize your profession of Christ's lordship? And then after we do that, we're going to read uh, verses 6 through 11 and uh, see if we can see how this all plays out. So verse 1, on a Sabbath... So we're just going to stop right there for a moment. 
on a Sabbath. Now, what we learn from the Old Testament about the Sabbath, Exodus 20, verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So what we find out about the Sabbath is that uh, God made it holy, and the reason for it is that God rested on the seventh day. And then in Deuteronomy 5, verse 12, we get a little bit more on the Sabbath. And uh, as uh, Moses reiterates the law to Israel, he says, Observe the Sabbath day, keep it holy, as the Lord God commanded you. So we've already been through that. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. Your God, on it you shall not do any work. You, your sons or daughter, or male servants or female servants, or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. So the Sabbath was given as a gift to Israel uh, through the law of Moses to remind them uh, that they need to rest, that God is the one who truly provides for them, that he's the one that has saved them uh, from the Egyptians. He's the one who fed them in the wilderness. And, uh, and, and so he gave it as a gift to them. So it's on the a Sabbath day, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of grain. Now imagine it. They're walking through the fields. They pluck some of the grain. They rub them in their hands. And the Pharisees, who by this time are kind of dogging Jesus, uh, trying to catch him uh, working on the Sabbath or breaking uh, the traditions of their fathers, uh, they see this, verse 2. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, in the law given to Israel, it was not against the law to go through your neighbor's uh, standing grain and to pluck the heads and to eat them. In fact, in Deuteronomy 23, 25, uh, the law says, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's grain. So you can't go out to your neighbor's grain and with a sickle cut it down. But if you're passing through and you're hungry, you can grab some with your hands and you can eat it. So the issue with the Pharisees is not the fact that they were eating their neighbor's grain. There was provision for that. But it was the fact that it was being done on the Sabbath that they were doing this. Now, uh, if you're familiar with uh, the Jewish people at the time of Jesus, by this time, uh, the religious leaders in Israel had taken the law of God and they had added to it, and they'd added detail to it that wasn't there, and they made it what it was not. Uh, you can read all about these extra traditions they attached to the law. Uh, you can essentially think of it like this. Uh, God gave the law to benefit Israel, and they thought, well, this thing's valuable, so let's make a hedge around this and just add to it and add to it and add to it, to the point where you can read the Talmud, which is uh, some of the collection of, of these Jewish laws, or you can read the Mishnah and uh, read what they all added to it. I just read to you what the law said about the Sabbath. It's given as a gift to them. But the Talmud, for example, uh, John MacArthur uh, writes has 24 chapters devoted to the Sabbath. <laughs> 24 chapters devoted 
to the Sabbath, describing in painful, exhaustive detail what was and was not permitted to be done. The result was a ridiculously complex system of external behavior restraints, so much so that one rabbi spent two and a half years studying just one of the 24 chapters. So that's just to give you a little bit of an idea. Now let's have a little fun and let me read to you a little bit of what they added to the Sabbath day. Um, uh, MacArthur writes, there were also regulations about carrying items. Something lifted up in public must be placed down only in a private place and vice versa. An object tossed into the air could be caught with the same hand, but if it was caught with the other hand, it would be a Sabbath violation. If a person had reached out to pick up food and the Sabbath began all of a sudden, the, uh, the food had to be dropped uh, for to bring the arm back while holding the food would be to carry a burden on the Sabbath. It was forbidden to carry anything heavier than a dry fig. A tailor could not carry his needle. A scribe could not carry his pen. Uh, the student could not carry his books. Only enough ink to write two letters of the alphabet could be carried. A letter could not be sent, not even with a non-Jew. Clothes could not be examined or shaken out. Uh, before being put on because an insect might be killed in the process, which would be work. No fire could be lit or be put out. Cold water could be poured into warm water, but not warm water into cold water. An egg could not be cooked, not even by placing it in hot sand during the summer. Nothing could be sold or bought. Bathing was forbidden, lest the water be spilled on the floor and be considered washing the floor. Moving a chair was not allowed since it might make a rut in the dirt floor, which is way too much like plowing. Women were forbidden to look into, the, into a mirror since if they saw a white hair, they might be tempted to pluck it out. There was a rule that you could only walk 3,000 steps from your front door on the Sabbath. But they had a rule that if you placed a piece of food 3,000 feet in front of your front door, that that would constitute your home. Or you could lay a piece of wood or a rope 3,000 feet out from your home, and that could be the entrance to your home, a very long entry. And then you could go further. So when I say, when I'm telling you that they added to the law of God and made this day miserable, it's beyond uh, your comprehension. Yeah, you'd have to read the Mishnah and the Talmud to see what ridiculous stuff they begin to see. So, as they plucked the grain, they harvested the grain. <laughs> they were, and, and as they did this, they were threshing the grain and as they were getting ready to put the kernels in their mouth, they were preparing the food. They were breaking the Sabbath. Jesus and his disciples, how dare they do this? And in verse 3, Jesus turns to them and says something that would have offended them. He says, have you not read? He's talking to the Pharisees, to the scribes, their whole job of the scribes, the teachers of the law, is to know the law inside and out. And Jesus is saying, have you never read the law? Have you never read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and how he took and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. Now get that, it says, which was not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave, gave it to those with him. He said to them, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now Jesus refers them back to a story found in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21 when, 
when uh, David is on the run from Saul. Saul is trying to kill him, and uh, he comes before Ahimelech, uh, the priest, and uh, he shows up with some men. He says, I can't tell you why I'm here. It's secret business on behalf of the king. We need food. And uh, the priest says, the only food we have is the bread of the presence. And right in front of the holies of holies, you would have a gold-laden uh, table that would have 12 loaves of bread that would be put on there uh, every Sabbath, 12 loaves in the presence of God. And across from it would be the lampstand. The 12 loaves represented the 12 tribes of Israel, and the lampstand represented uh, God's word and God's light that shines in on Israel and that God provides for Israel. And the priest said, this is all we got. And he gave some to David and to uh, those who were with him, the priest asked if they had been with women and if the men were pure. And David said that they were pure and he gave it to them. In fact, in chapter 22, verse 9, uh, when uh, <clears throat> uh, Doeg, the Edomite, who watched this whole thing take place that was in the temple, uh, he stood by one of the servants of Saul. Saul was upset that he didn't know where David was. He said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. He inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provision and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Now, the reason why I read that is we're told that the priest, Ahimelech, inquired of the Lord for David and then gave him the bread. So there's the law that was given to Israel that that bread was only supposed to be eaten by the priests on the Sabbath day when they replace it with the new bread. But here, David is there with his men. They're not the priests. And the high priest inquires of the Lord and then gives them the bread to eat. And Jesus is saying, have, have, you, have you never read this story? Do you not know what God is like? Do you not understand your Old Testament? Do you not understand the law that has been given to you? And then he said to them, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now this would make them want to kill Jesus, and it does, right there. Because the Sabbath was given within the Ten Commandments, and who gives the Ten Commandments? God does. And Jesus just says, by the way, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. <laughs> you don't like my interpretation of the law, the Sabbath law. I am Lord over it. He's the Lord of the Ten Commandments. And so there's two things I think we see in these verses and the first one, and the most highlighted one, is Jesus' authority. <laughs> Jesus is highlighting in verse 5, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And I think here's how it looks. As David, when he showed up, the authority that David had, if his authority was great enough that he would be able to eat the bread of the presence... How much more is the king who has come, who is Lord of the Sabbath, able to walk through the grain fields and eat the grain, which actually wasn't even breaking a law. I wasn't even breaking a law to do that, the law of God. It was breaking the tradition of the elders, uh, but not that. So Jesus' authority supersedes that of David's. He's the son of David, and he's the greater son of David. David's authority uh, was great enough that it superseded the law of God in a technical sense. In a technical sense. But I think the way the events played out was actually fulfilling the law of God, which brings us to um, the second part is is what is the heart of the law of God? 
So my first question to you, though, is do you profess Christ's lordship over all things? The Pharisees did not see the authority of Jesus Christ. He was not one who could interpret the law of God rightly in their minds. They did not realize his authority. By this time, they should have recognized it. He's done many miracles. His teaching has stumped them already. He's already cleansed the temple at the beginning of John. They should have recognized his authority, and yet they haven't. And I'm asking you the question, have you recognized the authority of Christ in your life? If I asked you, have you received Jesus Christ, most of you would say yes. And if I asked you, have you received Jesus Christ as Lord, most of you are going to say yes, but not even think about what Lord means. Do you see him as the king who sets the agenda for your life? Do you realize that if you're trusting in Christ, he bought you with the price of his precious blood? Christ owns you. He is your master. In fact, Paul calls himself a slave of Christ all the time. Your life is defined by his lordship, and if that's true... If you realize that Christ is Lord, then we need to look at how he lives so we can see what pleases God, what type of life pleases God. Now, the other gospels that Mark and Matthew that talk about this story give us a few extra details that I think helps us fill out the meaning of this. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 5, Uh, we're told that there's more to the conversation. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 5, Jesus says to the Pharisees, Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. (laughs) He says, Have you never read in the Old Testament that the priests are working on the Sabbath? which means they're breaking the Sabbath, they're profaning the Sabbath, and yet God holds them guiltless? Have you not read your Bibles? And the reason why it was okay for the priest to work on the Sabbath is because it was important to do the work of the temple, and Jesus is saying something greater than the temple is here. Do you not know who is here? Do you not understand my authority? Do you not understand what time it is? Let's see here. The second thing is this. The question I want to ask is, first, do you see Jesus' authority? Second, does love legitimize your profession? Because what we see in the story that David, uh, or the story of David eating the bread of the presence, is that man's needs in the midst of <laughs> trial supersede the technicalities of the law. In fact, Fulfilling the law of God at the heart of it is loving others. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, uh, here's what Jesus says. Here's what he adds to this uh, event. He says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is basically saying this. If you would read your Bible with your eyes open, you would know that God desires mercy. You would have listened when God described himself to Moses when he was going up uh, to get the commandments from him. They would have been listening to Jeremiah when Jeremiah is speaking about the mercy and grace of God, but Jesus says, you didn't know that. You didn't know that God would desire mercy and not sacrifice. If you would have known that, you wouldn't have been surprised 
that my disciples are eating grain, walking through the fields. But what he's saying is, is you don't know God. You don't know what God's like. You think God is a legalist. You think God is the God of technicalities. And yet the law of God is meant to serve people, just like our laws are. Do you, do, do, do you, you drive this speed limit to say, there, the speed limit sign was grateful that I honored it. You see, that would be, the, that would be a man living for the law. That doesn't make sense. We make speed limit laws. Why? Because we love people. The law is there to benefit the people of God, not to put them in a hard place, not to make them um, uh, starve, where in fact, what is the Sabbath about? I'll feed you. What more appropriate thing to do than to be walking through the grain fields thanking God for the food he's provided as you're plucking the heads of grain and eating? That's the meaning of the Sabbath. God hates it when his people keep the letter of the law and not the heart of it. If you read any of the Old Testament prophets, you'll see this over and over again. God says, essentially, quit coming to my temple. I don't want to see your sacrifices anymore. I don't want to see your offerings. You come in with a rotten heart. When you come in, it's a stench to me because your hearts are evil. God's always hated this. The Pharisees should have been able to read the law and realized what it was uh, they were doing. Uh, I want to bring out this principle in 1 Corinthians 8. If you, uh, we got a few minutes here, so turn to 1 Corinthians 8 with me, and I want you to consider uh, this text. And I'll just give, give this to you a little bit from personal, uh, a little personal testimony here. The way I would describe my Christian life is growing up in the church, uh, uh, trusting Christ, I think, at a young age. I don't know when I was saved, uh, but not really expanding in my understanding of the richness of the gospel and, and really having a heart to dive into God's word until really about, uh, probably about nine years ago, uh, I was five years into being a youth pastor before God really opened my eyes to a rich understanding of the gospel. And part of that was through me understanding that God was a sovereign God, uh, through understanding that uh, God is the one who saves a person, who creates faith in a person. I understood the sovereignty of God in a way I'd never understood it. And I would tell you, it was like I was given a new Bible. <laughs> Everywhere I looked, I saw the sovereignty of God rather than like God 50%, man 50%. That's how I kind of conceived salvation. I didn't realize it is true a man needs to believe to be saved, but how can he believe when he's spiritually dead? God is the author and perfecter of our faith. He who began a good work will bring it to completion. I started seeing these things. Whoa, I'm saved not because I was better than my neighbor who rejects me when I try to share Christ with him, but because I was shown mercy. That'll humble a person. And it was like I was given a new Bible. And I knew, I started learning so much. I'd maybe read three books up to that time, like books other than, other than the Bible. And in one year, I read like 18 books. And knowledge was flowing into my head really fast. And I thought, man, my life is changing and it'll never change as drastic as it changed right then. But in the past three years, uh, since I started getting uh, training in biblical counseling, <laughs> it was like I've been given a whole new Bible again. 
And all this knowledge that I stored up in my head, which was actually starting to make me proud and look down on other people, it was like a crack in the bottom of that was opened up and the knowledge started flowing into my heart and I actually stopped being such a jerk and so prideful. And by the grace of God, I pray that the knowledge that's in my head will hit my heart more and more. But one of the passages that started standing out to me was passages like 1 Corinthians 8. Because I had in my mind, truth is everything. Knowledge is everything. Because if you don't have knowledge, you can't know God, you can't know anything. Truth is everything. Problem is, it is true you can't be a Christian without truth and without knowledge. But the New Testament doesn't put truth and knowledge at the top of the pyramid. What does the New Testament put at the top of the pyramid? Love. Let me, let me, I'm just going to show you this in one place. 1 Corinthians 8, 1. Now concerning food offered to idols. So here's what you have. Here's the context. You have a brand new church that's struggling. They're not a very godly church. There's a lot of division. They're fighting over which teacher they like more, Paul, Apollos, Peter, they're not focusing on Christ. There's divisions in the church. There's even a man sleeping with his own mother-in-law. Um, and, and it's uh, rampant uh, immaturity in this brand new church. And the people that are causing the most problem aren't just the licentious ones, but it's actually the ones that have the most knowledge because they understand that all food is now clean. You can now eat uh, pork. You can now eat food sacrifice to idols. Uh, and with this new knowledge that's good and right knowledge, the church of God is being split. So here's what he writes. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. I actually think he's being sarcastic there. He's saying, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And then he says this, this knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. And then look at how he mocks them in verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he doesn't yet know as he ought to know. <laughs> you see that? If you imagine you know true things... You, you and I both know true things about God, but we don't know as we ought to know. We don't have perfect knowledge. And then he says this, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And then he goes on in verse 7, however, not all of us possess this knowledge, meaning there's some in the church that aren't as good as all you knowers. They don't possess, possess that knowledge. But some, through their former association with idols, eat food as really sacrificed to idols, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Meaning, they've been idolaters their whole life, and it's hard for them to eat the food that used to be eaten in, in, in praising the idol. And so they're struggling with this food transfer. And then he says, for if anyone sees you who has knowledge eating in the idol's temple, will he not, or will he not be encouraged if, if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by doing, or, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, Paul says, I'll never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So here's what we have. What's the truth of God's word? You can eat meat. But Paul says, I won't go with that truth if it causes my brother to stumble. Because there's something more important than truth, love. Now, here's, and, I, and I'm telling you, I'm preaching this to you now, but I've been preaching it to my own heart all week. Because something I can struggle with is I can learn a whole lot in my mind and then I can start to become critical to everyone around me. I can start to become critical of my wife. Compassion can be a 
something that isn't easily found in my heart as I see stuff that isn't right. I, you know, I know this is right or I know that is right. <laughs> but here's how I feel like uh, the Holy Spirit hit me with this through this text this week. It went like this. How much knowledge do I have? Let's put it in percentage. Let's, let's say perfect knowledge is 100%. What place of knowledge am I at right now? I don't know. I'd maybe give myself 10%. So let's say I know 10% of what I could know about God, but because I don't love the Lord my God with all my heart, all my mind, and all my strength, I don't know near as much as I ought to know. 10%, let's say. Now, let's ask this question. Sam, how much mercy have you received from God and from Christ? What's the answer? 100%. I've been given 100% mercy and love and forgiveness in Christ, and my knowledge is at 10%, and yet my life is being lived as though 90% of the time I'm a truther and 10% of the time I show mercy. What in the world is wrong with me? I ought to be an expert in patience and mercy and grace to the person who isn't quite there yet in maturity. If I would have wrote the letter to the Corinthians I would have said, you guys probably aren't even believers, but Paul calls them babes in Christ. He assumes that he has patience and mercy for them. So, you can pray for me, and I'll pray for you, that you become experts in what you're experts in. Absolutely, teach everyone everything you know about God, God's word, about the gospel. Give it all to them. But give them everything you've got when it comes to mercy and love and patience. Now imagine this. I'm getting myself in trouble. How much knowledge did Jesus have? 100%. And the shocking thing is Jesus didn't go around. Every person Jesus talked to, he knew better than they did. He knew all their faults. But Jesus, even in his kindness, in his tenderness, in his patience, told the disciples, there's so much more I have to teach you, but you can't handle it right now. I know you're weak. <laughs> you can't take everything I'm thinking. And, and it would just crush him for him to stop him every moment and say, look at this, look at this, look at this. And yet, that's how I can father, that's how I can be a husband, and it isn't like Christ, and it isn't like God. And I'm by no means saying the truth doesn't matter. God works through his word, and his word, when it's attached to by faith, produces love and mercy, and kindness, and patience. So, look at, uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 27. Uh, so this is Mark's account of the same account. Uh, Mark says this, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, so the Son of God is even, or is Lord even of the Sabbath. There he's making the point that the purpose of the law of God is to show love and mercy to people, to remind people that God will carry them. Um, you don't need to turn here. I just want to give you a few more places in the New Testament so you just feel the strength of this. 
At one point, uh, Jesus gets asked by the Pharisees, teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love God, love neighbor. If you want to funnel the whole law down, it's to be a blessing to you to help you love God and love your neighbor. Now, as a sinner, the law convicts us, shows us we have no hope in and of ourselves. But even if we look at that, we should remember, wait a minute, God's the one who saves us out of Egypt. And so we look, we see that our only hope is Christ. And then once we're saved in Christ, the law doesn't condemn us anymore, uh, but we can read it and get wisdom from it. Uh, Christ fulfills the law, and the moral law continues on. The civil and ceremonial law, this is a little uh, simplified, uh, goes away in Christ. You can't bring the old in to the new. At the end of the book of Romans, chapter 13, verse 8, Paul says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. So what does Jesus do? He shows up and he fulfills the law of God. If any part, now listen to me, if any part of your theology leads to a lack of love and compassion for those in need, it's a flawed theology. Let me say it again. If any part of your theology leads to a lack of love and compassion for those in need, and that would mean sinners as well, it's a flawed theology. Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples by your love. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What's new about the new commandment? the perfect expression of it in the body. Look at me, he says. Look how I loved you. That's how you love other people. That's how they'll know you are mine. We're not gonna have time to do the second half. We'll save that for next week. Uh, but I do want, you, want to ask you these two questions. Do you profess Christ's lordship over all things? Do you really see Christ? Is, is he the model of your life? Or have you received Christ and, in a sense, got your ticket to heaven, your salvation, and now are you building extra laws just like the Pharisees did around Christ and therefore nullifying Christ? We can do that. Some of the most Bible-believing churches that hold the Bible up, you go to their churches, and if you listen carefully, they're not excited about Jesus. They're excited about how long's your skirt? How long, you know, did you, did you do the hand test? Does, does your shirt go this low? Yeah. You'll hear those rules all day long, but do you hear Christ? You and I can fall into that so easily. More often than not, I can tend to be like a Pharisee and know it in my mind, become proud, and then deny it with my heart and deny it with, with my life. My prayer is, is that you see Christ, you see how he lived, you see the mercy and love that he's shown you, you see the gospel that he's given you. You see the patience that he has for you. 
and you overflow with that love to your spouse and to your children and to your neighbors and to your friends. And if you're wondering, what is it? What love has Christ shown me? Here's what you need to know. The Bible teaches that we're sinful. That doesn't mean we're kind of bad. That means we rebelled against our creator. It's treason. We shake our fist at God. Everyone is born doing this. And because he's an eternal God, the only punishment that is just for that type of rebellion is an eternal punishment. You've offended an eternal God, eternal punishment in hell is what's demanded. But God in his mercy has, and in his love, has sent his own son. It's like you're standing in line to go before the judge and you're gonna face him and you're gonna face him with your life and you realize he's perfect and I'm sinful and the only hope I have is if by some miracle, someone who is perfect, who's never sinned and has the same value of God himself comes, takes your place in line and gives you his perfect life. And your sins are hidden from the judge. They've been taken away. And that's exactly the good news of the Bible. That's what God did. He sent Jesus, the eternal son of God. He's man, 100% man. He's 100% God. He's the same worth of God. He's the only one that can be your substitute. He's your only hope to having your sins forgiven and making you, giving you a right relationship with God. That's love and mercy beyond our comprehension. And God wants that love that he's poured into your hearts to pour out. And when that happens, people say, that's a Jesus disciple. <laughs> that's what Christ is like. My prayer is you cling to Christ as your only hope. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your kindness. Lord, I thank you that when Christ showed up, he came to seek and save the lost. He came for the sinners. Lord, I pray that no one here would take lightly this reality because we know when Christ comes a second time, he's not coming a second time to give a second chance but he's gonna come back for those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's gonna snatch those up and everyone else will be left with their own life, their own sin, standing before the judge. What mercy we have in this moment to cling to Christ by faith and be saved. Lord, I pray we would do that. In Jesus' name, amen.